0: Please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, the letter of James in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the front of the pew in front of you, or the back of the pew in front of you. I don't know if the lights are going to come on here. Have we got lights? Do they normally come on? Sorry, I can just about see book of James James chapter 1 verse 2 counted all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing well let's go to the Lord in prayer gracious Heavenly Father We come to you this morning in the name of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who has brought us to Christ and life in Him, to know the forgiveness of sin through His sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. We revel in the grace that you have shown us. We are people Of grace who stand in grace and live out of grace help us this morning to worship you right from our hearts to be obedient to your word even as we hear your word preached to not just be hearers but doers of your word transformed people that our witness to Christ in this place to one another would be evident uh, but also in the world outside as we speak the gospel, and as we live out transformed Christian lives in our communities, in our workplaces, schools, sports teams, whatever activity uh, that we are doing. We pray that the gospel goes forth from this city this morning, from Calgary through word-based churches. We think even of Cochrane and Grace Church Cochrane, now our friends, our loved ones there, and the preaching of the Word with Jeff Jones and ask that you would bless them. We ask that a great work would be done in this country. We even ask you to bless Pastor Clint as he travels this week and part of which as he and Pastor Josh go to the TGC Canada conference. We pray for that conference to bear great fruit And that many would be encouraged and churches would be strengthened in this land. And pray for the governors of this land and all in authority, federally and provincially, that they would govern righteously, that they would be saved by this gospel even. That we would be able to live peaceful and quiet lives. I pray for our church this morning that you would apply this word preached to the many different people in here, the many different circumstances of life, the trials and the tribulations that we all experience. I pray that you would encourage those who are, are downhearted. I pray that you would corral those who are disobedient and proud. I pray that you would save those who are lost. And I pray that you would do it for the name of your own dear Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you may be seated. So, if you keep the letter of James open, that's just those few verses this morning. I've entitled the sermon, Trials of Joy. Trials of Joy. Uh, the letter uh, of James, written by James, obviously. James is the, our Lord Jesus' brother. Um, It's full of practical Christianity. Practical Christianity. Uh, A letter written generally to scattered house churches suffering persecution and privation and problems of many kinds, you see at the beginning of the letter, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So it's a general letter to the churches as opposed to a specific letter like letter to the Corinthians or Ephesians. Okay? It's generally across, and, and thereby extension to us. Just as the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and you can see many references, keep that in mind as you read through James, if you are going to do that this week, and I'd encourage you to do it. Many references to the Sermon on the Mount in this letter. But just as the Sermon on the Mount doesn't teach us how to become a Christian, but what life as a Christian looks like, so too, James. It's, this is what Christianity looks like. Pastor James, master counselor of souls. He's full of love for people. Full of love for people. He writes in, in, um, in, in, in cha- uh, chapter one, verse two, my brothers, he says, or you could say my brothers and sisters. Um, down in verse 19, my beloved brothers. Full of love for people. And yet, James is a straight shooter. He doesn't mess about. His instruction is to the point, and it is clear. No messing around with James. There are 60 imperatives in this letter. This is a letter that's full of of kind of pithy, proverbs-like words of wisdom for Christian living. And he's particularly concerned in the letter with testing faith, with testing faith because of a threat of a worldly mindset in the churches. In in, in those areas of life, and those areas in the church where the faith doesn't issue forth in love, where doctrine doesn't relate to what you're doing. And so he can say in verse 22 of chapter 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Be doers and not hearers only. James challenges these churches, and he challenges us by saying, if you're a Christian, you will visibly change. If you are a Christian, you will visibly change. So a question for you up front, are you maturing? Are you changing? Is there an observable difference in your life from six months ago? Maybe even from last week? Are you a teachable person who humbly receives instruction and becomes a doer of God's word. This tests if your faith is real, you see. So James can say in chapter two, verse 17, faith apart from works is useless. That's what he's basically saying. Now this does not, now hear me right, this does not contradict the truth of being saved by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. Pastor Josh just unpacked that for us somewhat this morning. This doesn't contradict that truth. But what he's saying is that saving faith is never alone. It looks like something, observably. And so he points to Abraham in the Old Testament who was justified by faith and that faith looked like something. It looked like offering his son Isaac on the altar in obedience to God. See, James is concerned with genuineness of lived out faith in the churches. And I would suggest that some of us perhaps today need to move from the notion of Christianity to the motion of Christianity. From the notion to the motion, lest we prove our Christianity to be false. Just because you come to a church with sound doctrine does not mean that doctrine has hit your heart and changed your life. Now imagine. Imagine if you're one of these little house churches, right, in early Christianity, and you receive this, this letter comes through the, the post from James. James, the brother of Jesus, James, the leader of the council in Jerusalem pretty significant guy this is the letter and, 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 and people are, are gathered in this little house church and one of the elders brings it in you know there's a letter from James here right and he opens up the letter and he, and he begins to read it aloud and after the introduction you hear the first instruction count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds when you meet trials rejoice it's the first point of my sermon meet trials and rejoice he says jb phillips puts it like this when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives my brothers don't resent them as intruders but welcome them as friends is that the first thing you want to hear from your pastor when you meet trials rejoice Yet James thought it was very important to lead with this. Very important. Building into people a theology of suffering is vital to their survival and their progress in the Christian life. It is a vital task of pastoral ministry to build into you a right theology of suffering so that you'll survive, and not just survive, you'll progress. It reminds me very much of Paul in Acts 14. Paul had been stoned in Lystra by men from Iconium and Antioch. And yet he returns to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch with Barnabas and he says he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Just been stoned, trial, tribulation, suffering, goes back to uh, the place and strengthens the souls of the disciples saying you're going to suffer. How do you strengthen a church in faith? Tell them they're going to suffer. Tell them they're going to suffer. You tell them when you meet trials, not if you meet trials, when. It's going to happen. And so many of our problems, friends, so many of our problems come from thinking we won't suffer or we don't deserve to suffer. But Peter tells us In 1 Peter 4, verse 12, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see, your trials this past year and perhaps this past week and upcoming next week, they're not unusual. They're not unusual. Don't be surprised. They're part of normal Christian life and no one is immune. So count it all joy. Consider it pure joy, all joy, pure joy, when you meet these trials. Wow, I don't know about you, but that is counterintuitive and countercultural, isn't it? Totally counterintuitive. The world and your flesh tell you, if you want joy, do all you can to avoid trials, right? That's what it would say to you. That's what your flesh would say. The world says, Troubles and hardship come to all of us and are wastes. It's a waste. And they're to be circumvented. But James and the rest of the Bible says no. The Bible says trials are a privilege which God the Father ordains in the lives of his children. You notice in Philippians, Philippians 1 verse 29, that Paul says, it has been granted to you, granted to you, that for the sake of christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake it has been granted by whom by god to do what to suffer god says here is a trial and he wraps it up and he gives it to you with a bow on top as a gift it's a gift now let's be clear james is not saying that the trial or the suffering is a cause of joy in and of itself and you must enjoy the pain, or you go out looking for the pain. No, the Bible is is honest. Suffering hurts. And, And all of us here wouldn't choose to suffer as such in that way. What he is saying is that our trials are a means to joy a means to joy if we approach them correctly, if we have the right mindset. That's why he says, consider it joy, or count it, or reckon it all joy. It's all about the mindset. And if you have this mind shift, friends, your life will change dramatically. It will change dramatically. Part of the right mindset, part of the right considering and counting them joy is knowing whose hand the trials come from. Now trials and suffering happen because we live in a fallen world, right? It's a world subject to corruption and full of sinners. Job says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. So so trials come from living in a a fallen world with sinful people. They also come because Satan causes them. Satan causes trials in, in your life, but they ultimately come because God ordains them and permits them. It's God who subjects the world to futility and judgment at the fall. You see that in Genesis three, we see it in Romans eight. It's God who allows Satan a certain limited reign in causing suffering for the saints. And so you think of the, the book of Job, Job again. Satan is the immediate cause of Job's troubles. But it is God who has permitted Satan to cause that trouble. He said you can go out and you can, you can test him. This far, you can't take his life, but you can test him. We see that in chapter one. So Satan is the immediate cause and God is the ultimate cause. When Satan causes havoc and takes Job's property and his children, it's God who permits it and it's Job who confesses it. What does Job say? said we sing it we say it the lord gave and the lord has taken away blessed be the name of the lord he attributes the ultimate causing causation to god job recognized that you want to turn back a page in your bibles and you'll you'll see hebrews 12 and in hebrews 12 we see a father in heaven who disciplines or trains his children as a sign of, of love for the sake of his children's righteousness, and then how this relates to earthly fathers and how they're to discipline their children. He says there in, down in verse 5, halfway through, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. Many parents do not allow their children to feel discomfort in training them because they have an inadequate view Of God and what his fatherly love and discipline looks like and a child you know a child who stiffens their neck at discipline has not been trained by it so won't experience joy and yet Jesus the child the 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 Son of God Hebrews tells us he learned obedience through what he suffered. In his flesh, through what he suffered, he learned obedience. So to the child of God, so to you and me. If you will be trained by your trials, the disciplining of trials, and not let them embitter you or lead you to despair, you must have the correct mindset, the right consideration. You need to consider it. Count them all joy though they don't feel like joy he doesn't say feel it all joy he says think it all joy brothers and sisters get your feelings underneath your mindset get your feelings and we're a very touchy-feely generation all hyper-emotional yeah get your feelings underneath your mindset some christians let their feelings rule their minds and that is to uh, some extent why so many get very down very easily we will all meet trials we will all meet trials all of us james says my brothers that that phrase my brothers so to christians we're all linked together and 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 we're brothers and sisters and, and we all walk the same path and so there is a comfort in knowing we're not alone in our trials, isn't there? What does Peter tell us in 1 Peter 5? He's talking about the devil, the devil's attacks. He says, stand firm in your faith. And he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world, the devil wants to, you to think you're the only one in here today experiencing trials. He wants to feel, make you feel isolated. But I tell you this, if each of us were to share one of our trials publicly after the service today, we would be here until next Sunday. We would and beyond because you have all experiencing trials. Everyone experiences trials. So I, I know I'm coming up 55 this week. 55, that's not a hint to buy me a present. Friday is the day. (laughs) I'm coming up 55 this week, okay? And the experience of 55 years, 37 of which are a Christian, over a decade as a pastor, has taught me this, personally in my life and in practice, even pastorally with people in this church and outside. There is no exemption from enrollment in the school of trials and there's no graduation this side of heaven either. Just when you think you finish one, there's another one. So don't be saying, no one knows my suffering, or it's all right for you over there. Everybody experiences uh, suffering and trials, And, and trials are relative. So everyone knows something of suffering by which they can relate to and comfort another, even if it's not exactly the same trial that they're going through. Uh, and look what James says, He's, he says you meet trials, you meet trials. These are not trials you, you go out looking for, like you get up in the morning and you think, how can I suffer today? Okay, that's not the, that's not the way that we get up, right? And, and so in that sense, you know, there's a right of wanting to avoid uh, trials, okay? He says, You fall into them. You meet them. You fall into them. This word in the Greek is interesting. It is the same word used in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke, where the man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he says, Fell among thieves. Fell among thieves. It came out the blue. Trials come out the blue. Suddenly, that phone call, that conversation, that email. That diagnosis, out the blue. And he also says that they are various kinds. Trials are varied. Now there may be times where trials are not as severe, but they are trials that are varied. So, in other words, it's to say they're multicolored. Multicolored, variegated trials. They come in all different shades and sizes. So this isn't speaking to the number of trials, but the different kinds of trials. And James touches on trials throughout the letter. If you read it this afternoon, it doesn't take long to read. I read it out loud this morning to my wife. She was making breakfast. Good way, just a hint for for guys in here. Want to lead your wife in the word? Just read out the scriptures to her while she's making breakfast. Throughout the letter, James touches on the trials, different trials, poverty. Prejudice, hurtful speech, jealousy, selfishness, relational quarreling and strife, decision making. Don't just decide you're going to go here and, and do this and that. It, if the Lord wills, you'll live. Sickness at the end of the letter. If anyone in his view is sick, call the elders. So there are various kinds, and there are complex kinds of trials as well. And aren't the most difficult trials, those which continue and where we can't see an end to them. They're the hard ones, huh? We can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And they have such a nature to them that it confuses us, befuddles us, and we feel an ongoing psychological and spiritual pressure. It's like a pressure. It doesn't seem to ease, or it's just there in the background. It's like an an app that you keep my kids tell me I've got too many apps running on my phone it's draining the battery life it's in the background draining think of Job again because just as James relates very much to the Sermon on the Mount it relates very much to Job if you read the book of Job James is like a commentary on it think of Job again his trial went on and on and he didn't know why we know why at the beginning of the book of Job because we see the insight with where the devil approaches God and how God ordains it. Job didn't see that. He doesn't know. He's in the dark. And it involved great psychological and spiritual pressure, as well as the relational, physical, and material pressure that he experienced. It is so much easier to bear our trials when we know they will end. But when there is no end in sight for the woman who has been going through menopause for years and years, or the woman who is married to a proud man who will not humble himself, or the woman who so desires a husband but has been unmarried for years and her biological clock is ticking and she thinks he will never come. It's very hard. It's very hard. There are complex trials and there are complex trials the pain of which you may not even be fully uh, relieved of in this life and yet it is possible friends it is possible to have joy it's possible to have joy not in the actual pain of the trial but by having the right mindset having the right mindset the right consideration counting it this way getting your mind over your feelings And having the right mindset means knowing the purpose of the trials. This is your reason for why you can have joy because the Christian knows what trials are for. Trials have purpose all the way. And that's my second point. God has purpose in trials. God has purpose in trials. He says it in verse 3. James says, For you know... That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know something if you're a Christian here. Count it joy because you know. Count it joy because you know. What do you know? That trials are tests of faith. The testing of your faith that produce the fruit of steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials test faith. Test faith for what? They test faith for genuineness. God tests the authenticity of our faith by giving us trials. That's what he does. So when disappointments come into your life, when difficulties come over you, you discover whether your faith is real. Peter speaks in language almost identical to James of trials which are like refining fire for precious metal. It's the next book along. He says in 1 Peter one verse six in this you rejoice count it all joy in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that is the purpose the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ we test genuineness of things, don't we? If you're going to be in the army, you've got to be tested See so that you're fit and ready. We test things like food, water. We test people with exams, school exams. Serious things need testing to prove their worth. How much more our faith? How much more our faith? What a terrible thing to not know if your faith is genuine. You see how God works. It's a grace when trials come, because it's a testing to see if your faith is genuine. So, So God puts us into those situations which prove faith. And when we come through, what a great assurance of faith that is. I'm a Christian, I believe. I'm a believer, I'm saved. See, we can confess with our mouth that God is our Heavenly Father, but how does that prove faith is real? How many Christians do you know? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in God as Father. We can confess that God is our Heavenly Father, but it's when something happens to us that makes it seem like He is not our Father. That's when it's tested. That's when we see if it's real. When the lights go out, when you're in the dark, waiting, when you're trusting, he is working, and that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Big issue with Job is whether Satan can get him to curse God through the suffering, or whether his faith will stand. Satan's purpose is you lose faith through the suffering. God's purpose is you prove faith through the suffering. So God's purpose supersedes Satan and he uses Satan's wickedness for the praise of the glory of his grace. Job stands, doesn't he? He does stand. And then God appears to him towards the end of the book out of a whirlwind. And you notice when you read Job, God does not tell Job why he suffered. He only shows him who he is, who God is. As the one who is sovereign over his suffering so i say to you today no matter what your trials god is way bigger than your trials way bigger than your trials and way wiser he sees thousands of things going into your trial and thousands of things coming out of your trial think of job right he only knew a limited amount even and he had this great experience of god at the end there He could never know the things going in and out of his trials. We look and we see, oh yeah, well, book of Job, see how Job is sanctified, see how there's a a reconciliation, see how he sees God. But there's, there's thousands and thousands of things God was doing through Job's trials. You know what he's done through Job's trials? He strengthened millions of Christians over the years, you and me, through Job's trials. Millions of purposes. Millions of purposes. The test of your faith is to prove its genuineness. One test then prepares you for the next. So what, you know you've been there before. You know that, that feeling. It's like the, the sportsman who, who makes their debut. Kevin will probably be able to tell you, you know that, that first day on the ice as a pro and you're nervous and everything seems fast and you, know, you just get through the game and, and then the next one comes. You've been there before, so you have a little bit of experience, so you're strengthened and the nerves are calmer. And you come through that first test, then there's the next test. One test prepares you for the next. So you trust in God's promises, you learn to live off them in the trial. Isn't it amazing how communion with God in word and prayer go, grows in a trial? It's amazing. it's, it's, It's interesting when you read Psalm 23, the psalmist turns from speaking about God at the beginning of the psalm, when he gets to the valley of the shadow of death, he's speaking to God. Communion with God deepens in the valleys, in the trials, in the darkness. If your communion with God is not growing in your trial, you're failing the test. Trials test the genuine nature of our faith. And God designs that then to produce in us the fruit of steadfastness. Steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That word for steadfastness has the sense of uh, stick to itness. Stick to itness. Some translations say endurance or perseverance. The sense of staying or remaining. And so you see, these trials not only prove the genuineness of faith, they increase the strength of faith, that steadfastness of faith. The, the prefix to the Greek word for steadfastness is hupo, which means, has the sense of being underneath, under something. So trials increase in us an ability to bear weight, to be under weight, under pressure, like muscles. Like muscles, are, you know, you, maybe this is a, an irrelevant illustration for you because some of you may not have been to a gym for years. But muscles need to be put under stress to make them grow, right? We know that in theory, if not in practice. And what happens when we don't exercise them? They atrophy. They need to be put under stress to make them grow. Like trials exercise the muscle of faith. And what happens? It grows in stamina and endurance, you get steadfast muscles of faith. That's what you get as they're put through the trials and the tests. Look at a weightlifter or an athlete. We look at them and, and and you say, how can they lift that weight? Or how on earth do they run that long? Well, they didn't just get up that day and say, I'm just going to the Olympics. I'm going to compete in the finals. Well, of course not. They, they've been spending years putting their bodies through painful testing that has increased strength and stamina, steadfastness. So, the reason that we can count it all joy when we meet many kinds of trials is because God has purpose in them for us. Trials test our faith for genuineness and produce the fruit of steadfastness, faith stamina but there's one more thing to see, final point before we close, and that is that we need to experience the full effect of trials to attain maturity, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now when you you get prescribed antibiotics, for an infection what does it say on the packet apart from all the possible side effects it can have it says please finish the course take the course you need to take the full course to let the, the antibiotics have their full effect and kill the infection and promote full health it's the same with trials And the fruit of steadfastness we need to let the steadfast producing trials have their full effect what is that effect is that you may be perfect and complete perfect that 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 word means mature not perfectionism mature and complete lacking nothing in other words christ-like that's the ultimate purpose of trials in the christian life christ-likeness That's what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, that includes your trials, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he has also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. So that one trial in the Christian life builds for the next as we stay in the finishing school of suffering. We have to take that class in the finishing school of suffering. It's painful, but it's fruitful. And the end goal, because wisdom always looks at the end of the matter, the end goal is Christian maturity. That is Christ-likeness. That full effect is a purifying effect that brings Christ-like maturity. That's the refiner's fire that Peter was talking about. Not only tests genuineness of faith, it purifies faith. It gets rid of the dross, like those precious metals when you put in the fire. The dross comes out. Isn't it true that trials in our lives bring sins to the surface? Trials bring sins to the surface. You might not say you're an angry person, but I reckon I could bring anger out on you pretty quick if I prod you and poke you in enough. Probably take me 30 seconds. Trials bring sins to the surface. The trial might not be your fault, but your self-righteous anger is revealed by the trial. It's revealed by the trial. Your complaining, grumbling spirit comes out and you use your tongue to tear down those made in the image of God. James warns about the anger of man. James warns about taming the tongue. And you see, the best of Christians has remaining sin that needs to be dealt with, but it needs to be revealed first. So enter trials. Enter trials. So, so think, of a, think of a Christian that looks pretty good, you know, maturing. There's a set, like a glass of water. Looks pretty, this could end badly here if I knock it over glass of water yeah cup of water looks clear there's a sediment of sin at the bottom trial comes bang hits the glass cloud of sin comes up like the sediment that's how the trial works in the christian life it jars us and then sin is revealed and we can then deal with that sin by faith in christ and develop perseverance and trials keep coming persevering faith then has its purifying effect in maturing a Christian in Christ likeness because Christ is pure that's the full effect and that's why what we must allow in the trial we must allow it yes pray for relief pray for relief the psalmists do sometimes they cry out how long O Lord and you know that some of you but have a holy submission to God's will and God's wisdom in gifting you trials as you count it all joy, consider it all joy, because you know the goal is good and you know that God is good. Scotsman George MacDonald put it very well when he's speaking of God's work through trials. Listen to this. Imagine yourself living in a house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is He's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. What a beautiful picture of what God is doing in each of our lives. He's building a palace and he's doing it through those trials. And he's going to come live in that palace. So Jesus promises a palace in which Christ himself lives. Your, your heart, that means we've got to let trials have their full effect to be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. God makes you like Christ. the palace in which Christ himself lives. Not perfect in this life, but heading in that direction and finished when we meet him face to face in heaven. And as I draw to a close, maybe I can suggest this. Maybe I can suggest that we are most like Christ. We are most mature when we are most merciful. Remember Job one more time. You see, trials and suffering are not the main point in the book of Job. They are the context of the main point. The main point is the praise of God, most specifically His compassion and mercy. Isn't that what James tells us in chapter 5 and verse 11? You can see it there for yourself. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. At the end of the book and at the end of Job's trials, God reveals himself to Job, and he shows Job great mercy in his suffering. And he restores to Job what he'd lost and more. But do you remember what happens before the restoration? Before the restoration in Job, there must be reconciliation. Reconciliation between Job and his friends. His friends who had acted like enemies towards him with their harsh words and their cold comfort. And God instructs the, the friends to ask Job to pray for them. And he's basically saying to Job, job you've received mercy now will you show it will you show it by forgiving them and praying for them and the full effect of job's perseverance in faith through trials is not proven until he loves his enemies and he prays for those who persecuted him and so we go from james to job to jesus and the sermon on the mount If you're a Christian here today, your trials are designed by God to bring about faith-filled perseverance which leads to Christ-like maturity, specifically to be merciful. Because trials toughen our faith and they tenderize our heart, isn't that true? It makes you much more compassionate to others when you've been through a trial. You can really sympathize in a way you couldn't sympathize before. You can extend mercy to others. You you can forgive others. Even as you've you've received the mercy of God during your trial, you can show mercy to others. But if we don't let the trials have their full effect, they can tenderize our faith and toughen our heart. But Jesus warns us, if you do not forgive others, you will prove yourself unforgiven. And James says, judgment without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Brothers and sisters, the main problem for Job and James and you and me is not our trials and suffering, it's our sin. And so we need a merciful God. And so we must remember in our various trials, however great, that we are not innocent sufferers because there has only ever been one innocent sufferer. And that is the lord jesus christ the god man whom the author of hebrews says for the joy joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of god in his mercy the son of god saved us from the justice of god by being a substitute on the cross in the place of all who would believe in him he suffered at calvary so that we wouldn't suffer eternally and he counted that that greatest of trials pure joy because he looked past the pain and to the prize look what james says down in chapter 1 verse 12 blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life the prize the crown of life which god has promised to those who love him Jesus is the true blessed man, and we follow after him as we press on to receive the crown, looking past the pain and to the prize. So brothers and sisters, the way to Christian maturity is through a door called trials and along a road called perseverance. The way to Christian maturity is through a door called trials and along a road called perseverance. And Christ-like maturity means displaying Christ-like mercy to others, the mercy of the cross that we've received produced in us as we take up our crosses on the narrow way along the Calvary Road. Now I know some of you are going through very deep waters right now, and I know it hurts. I know it hurts. And, and maybe you can't see how it will end well, but remember this, even when all you can do is cry out, Abba, father in trials and you know what it's like just like father father oh father that is of itself an indication of saving faith because unbelievers don't cry out father they don't cry out father that one word is an assurance of your salvation so your trials become a means to joy trials of joy Amazing thing to be a Christian. What a thing to be a Christian. Next week we're going to look at verse 5 and the call to pray for wisdom and how it's linked to this text today. Let's pray. Father, you have been so merciful to us. We praise you even of the grace and mercy that the trials of life are for us ordained by your hand, a reason to consider it all joy, all of it in various kinds because we know who the trials come from. We know the purpose for which they come to test our faith and produce that steadfastness that endures to the end and brings about Christ-like maturity in us and all that's what we want. So keep us focused on these things and and may we be Christ-like in that the trials in our lives produce mercy in our hearts. I ask that you would plant this word deep down in us. I pray that we would receive it with meekness, and we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and we'll sing one more time. I mentioned Romans 8 and the second half of Romans 8 being in the context of suffering. And Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure, he says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hang on to that truth as you meet your trials this week and count it all joy. You're dismissed.